Hello, baby. Want a kiss? Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast with your host, Ken Hess. Teaching a parakeet to talk is fun, but the old method took too much time and patience. This record is specially designed to teach any healthy, normal parakeet to talk by using a scientific new method that is acknowledged to be far superior because a carefully trained voice, specially chosen for excellence in clarity and diction, repeats over and 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 over the same words, the same phrase, in a manner that most parakeets are most likely to imitate. Check experimentalfilm.info for information, interviews, and episodes. For the next few seconds, this record will be silent. This podcast is dedicated exclusively to experimental film and its makers. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Today's guest is experimental filmmaker, installation artist, and author Joel Schlimowitz. Joel is an experimental filmmaker who works with 16mm film, shadow play, magic lanterns, and stereographic media. He is the author of Experimental Filmmaking and the Motion Picture Camera, an introductory guide for artists and filmmakers. Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast, Joel. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad to have you on, finally, after all this time. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> could you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work? Well, I studied filmmaking in this, in college, but started really kind of making films shortly thereafter, going the experimental filmmaking route. Although when I got interested originally in film, I was more interested in uh, I don't know the independent cinema of the time. But I don't know experimental. I saw as sort of a uh, an, a, a more accepting form to you know trying out unorthodox approaches. It was more liberating. It was more liberating than, uh, you know, a more conventional sort of approach. And uh, worked for a while with 16 millimeter and then kind of expanded outwards in different directions, getting interested in uh, film that would be, uh, you know, positioned off the screen rather than on the screen um, and creating installation pieces working a lot with uh, the Bolex camera and what it can do as a source of creating in-camera experimentation, sort of fully formed, you know, through the use of the camera rather than through the more conventional process of, of shooting to edit and then creating the piece in editing. Uh, and uh, lately uh, getting very serious about uh, the magic lantern as a uh, a medium as well. So that's me. Uh, magic lanterns, for those who don't know, are kind of an old school, like late 1800s uh, slide projector. Is that kind of an accurate description? Oh, yes, yes. Um, although, uh, I don't know, in some ways what's interesting is the way that the magic lantern um, didn't produce a, a static image um, some of the time. It... There were many different kind of ways to introduce movement, uh, cinematic movement, one might almost say, um, into uh, the projected hand-painted glass slide. Uh, things that use uh, multiple panes of glass that can move around and gear work. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. A, a, a slide projector 
perhaps, but it can be more than that too. Yeah, that's very cool. It's been a while since I've seen one. I see them for sale occasionally, mm. but they're uh, they're not cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, one has to be patient to find uh, find one that's cheap enough. <laughs> yeah, that's so. true. <laughs> so you you work a lot with the Bolex camera. Um, mm-hmm. What is it about the Bolex that's so intriguing to filmmakers? Uh, I know several filmmakers who that's mm-hmm. exclusively what they use. Oh yes, yes. I don't know, uh, and it's it's a camera that kind of it's added to and, and evolved over over its uh, existence, um, and started out really as a home movie camera, and sort of in in some sense was a home movie camera, you know, the whole time that it was produced. But uh, you know the the reason for it sort of being such a rich uh, source for experimentation was that uh, to compete with other home movie cameras, they wanted, you know, to add some little gimmick. Your camera could do this, your camera could do that. Um, adding um, a variable shutter so you could fade the image in and out. Adding backwinding capability so you could rewind the film and re-expose it. Um, having time exposures, something you didn't find on any other motion picture camera hardly at all um and so you know with with all this sort of incentive to make a, a camera really for amateurs that you know would would attract a market through the fact that oh you know it, it does this little thing and that little thing that the other cameras don't do uh you had inadvertently the creation of the ultimate experimental filmmaker's camera um it's it's a camera that is incredibly versatile in terms of all the things it's capable of. Um, although it still kind of remained um, a home movie camera to the extent that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't designed for professional use for shooting sync sound. Um, and uh, I don't know, it, it's over time. It also sort of started to get a few more kind of, uh, professional attributes like, um, you know, synchronous motors and time-lapse motors and magazines and things like that. But at the heart of the camera still is, you know, the this device that really is sort of like a, a Swiss army knife in that it, you fold out this and you fold out that and it does a hundred different sort of idiosyncratic things. So how many Bolex cameras do you own? Oh, uh, for a long time, I had just one that was my main Bolex, and then it uh, it had to get retired when it uh, just had gotten, you know, sort of uh, starting to, to wear itself out. Um, and I got another one at that point that had some uh, mechanical problems, and that retired a little quicker than the other. So I'm now up to my third camera. Um and uh, I still have the the second one. Um, you know, the uh, the first one actually donated to uh, Mono Noaware, the uh, the film group here in New York, in Brooklyn, that uh, does uh, uh, workshops and has access to equipment. You know, uh, for for artists at sort of cheap subsidized rates. So. Yeah, I've actually spoken to Steve Kosman. Uh, on the podcast, he was on with one of the filmmakers, and 
and we oh, talked wonderful. for a bit. Yeah, it's very very cool. I like that. In fact, if I ever go to Brooklyn again, I'm I'm going to go and show up <laughs> and check it out. Oh yes, yes. So yeah, are, definitely worth a visit. Yeah. So are you part of um, any Brooklyn filmmakers groups or uh, any meetups that they have around there? Oh, um, well, anyway, um, I've, I've done things at, uh, at Mono Noaware. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of one of the more kind of, uh, sort of exciting places. Although right now with the, the COVID pandemic and, you know, everything is kind of quiet, uh, you know, when, uh, when things start up again, there'll be, uh, places to go like microscope gallery that, um, where I've shown work, they, um, they're kind of an interesting place in that they kind of really are the meeting point between uh, the more kind of fine arts world um, of the gallery and artists who use moving images and filmmakers who also make art. Um, uh, they're doing their uh, screening series online right now on Mondays. So one can kind of visit them right now in that sense. Yeah, that's very cool. So do you work exclusively in 16 millimeter or do you also use eight millimeter Bolex type film cameras? Oh, um, I, I work a bit with super eight as well. Uh, now and again, um, you know, uh, it's sometimes hard to find a, a good sturdy, dependable, uh, super eight camera though. Um, you know, uh, so it's it, in some ways it makes it a trickier medium to work in. <laughs> yeah, I've um, I've been sort of coveting some Bolex cameras, but uh, gosh, to find a really good one, they are terribly expensive these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was not long ago that you know when one could find one pretty reasonably, but lately, not so much. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, there was a, a time period where there were a lot of people who had Bolexes who had kind of just switched over to to digital video and, you know, were kind of happy to see their camera passed on to someone who would use it. Right. But I think I think those cameras have all found homes now. Yeah. So that's a good question for you is, have you done any digital work? Oh, yeah. Um, no, I did a... Um, experimental documentary on 78 RPM record uh, that was principally shot with a 16 millimeter and a, and a Bolex camera um, shooting and then hand processing the film. But uh, for the inter sit down interviews, I don't know, uh, I ended up using digital video. It, it, it would have kind of, to me, seemed uh, a little bit too much to, you know, be that much of a purist and, and have a sit down interview in, uh, in 16 millimeter. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I find actually, um, that there's less of, you know, that sort of, uh, how would you put it? Um, um, now there used to be decade, maybe a decade or two ago, kind of a, a real sense of the factions between those working with analog and those working with digital and going back further, those working with film and those working with analog video. Um, HD emulates so much of, 
you know, kind of this this feeling of of uh, you know things like um, I don't know the the way that the thirty five millimeter camera feels. That uh, I think a lot of that has kind of broken down, um, and it's also kind of impossible to even work in analog without it sort of touching the digital in some form or fashion. Um, you know, having one's footage transferred to a digital medium, uh, working with digital sound and analog images, and um, and so I don't know the 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 two I think have have the walls that used to exist between the two uh, don't have, have are full of holes and kind of have been torn down. I think in many ways. Uh, so no. it's it's yeah it's hard to it's hard to distinguish between the two in some ways compared yeah. to how it, how that, one used to distinguish between them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. These days, it's really hard because to to get any viewership, you have to digitize your mm-hmm. analog film, and so it it kind of you know you almost lose that organic feel of watching a projector nowadays. Well, one one thing that I've I've used for uh, mostly for doing stuff relating to uh, to like installation work is a um, a film recorder for making thirty five millimeter slides, um, and this is something that I don't know <laughs> had uh, had a, a life I guess sometime in the nineteen nineties as uh, as this odd sort of hybrid uh, between digital and film. Uh, it takes a digital file and lets you create a 35 millimeter slide uh, made by Polaroid. Um, and uh, I remember being very excited when I when I first got this sometime in the in the 2000s. Um, you know, because people were kind of unloading them at that moment. They kind of had lived out their usefulness and uh, talking to, uh, to a colleague over at the new school. Um, and I was all excited. I have this thing. It's a film recorder. It lets you take a digital file and turn it into a 35 millimeter film slide, analog film. And they were baffled by this. Why would you go from digital to analog? <laughs> you know, shouldn't you want to want to take things in analog and make them digital? Yeah. I don't know. To me, this film recorder is is the ultimate of the uh, the sort of like I don't know sort of blurring between uh, digital and analog that exists now. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I might have to check that out. <laughs> now your your documentary that you spoke about it's titled Seventy Eight RPM, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I thought so. I've I've tried to watch a lot of your films and I've I've gotten some, but I. For some reason, I don't think I could get to anything but a trailer on that one. Oh yeah, yeah. It um, it was showing around uh, a little bit, uh, but I haven't I haven't really figured out the uh, the sort of online outlet that makes the most sense for it just yet. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's funny the the whole world of, of distribution is is very different now um you know than uh, because of uh of the internet than it even it was um you know at the at the time when uh you know dvds and the internet coexisted um 
So I don't know. That's uh, I don't know. It it will it will be out there some way and somehow. Mm. Um, I I can't remember how. I discovered your work. Um, I can't remember if it was when I was in New York and went to the uh, Museum of Modern Art or if I saw something online. But what I remember is, was it a Victrola and some uh, video, you know, from film? I, I can't remember exactly. It seemed like an installation piece, but there was like, you know, the 78 RPM records running on a Victrola and... Mm-hmm. Um, some, like I said, I can't remember if they were still shots or if it was actual film. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, the the 78 RPM uh, record player has, has sort of uh, been been something I've, I don't know, found an interest in for quite a while. Um, one, of, one of my early films was shooting a, a record being played not having any sound and then drawing directly on the film to sort of create the, uh, the, the sort of sound waves sort of moving through the air. Um, and, uh, then I don't know, uh, I don't know. 78 records have shown up as soundtracks. Um, the nice thing about the 78 record is that it uh it's three minutes long it perfectly complements the length of the hundred foot roll of film in that respect um and so you know if you have like an unedited cabaret roll that uh you're showing as a finished work it's three minutes long uh, 78 is three minutes long they kind of pair together nicely um and uh no no there's there's work by Ken Jacobs that, that uses 78s in this sort of way. Uh, there's uh, also, um, you know, a uh, Warren Sombert film that's uh, a collection of, of pop songs and camera rolls. Um, and so, I don't know, I've, I've also made, uh, made work that sort of pairs together these two three-minute formats. Right, yeah, I, I really enjoy retro technology, I guess you'd say, you know, Victrola's 78 RPM records and so on. So when I, I think that's how I discovered your work is that I I liked all those same things that you use. It's like, man, this is a kindred spirit (laughs) here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I, um, you know, I've, like I said, I've watched uh, several of your films. Um, The one I found really intriguing is what you did with your friend in, um, I think it was, Colorado. It's called Boulder, Brooklyn. Yes, yes. A correspondence film. Now, mm-hmm. this is just a three-minute film. So, did you did you guys shoot like thirty seconds at a time and then send it to each other, or how did you work that out? Oh, well, we shot. Yeah, we shot the entire three-minute roll um, and sent it back and forth, um, and you know, didn't have it processed um, in in the, uh, in the interim. And so I exposed images in, in New York. She exposed images in Boulder or Colorado, but we didn't see the result until it then went to the lab and we could see what was superimposed. And what you're seeing is the three minute camera roll that uh, is just sort of how it came out of the camera. So 
kind of a, another example of the uh, the process of of using uh, unedited footage to create the the final piece. Um, I can't remember her name, but is she the one that's narrating the film? Oh yeah, yeah, Nicole Kochman. Yeah, uh, she had lived in New York for a while and then had moved out there um, to Boulder, and uh, we decided this would be kind of an interesting collaboration to do to uh, to mail the film roll back and forth. Um, neither of us telling the other person what we were filming. So one kind of all, one kind of had to kind of anticipate. Well, what's you know what's likely to go with something that the other person might shoot? <laughs> and your film um, is it forty over four thousand or? Oh how, yes. <laughs> uh, is that a fortieth birthday party for someone? Yeah, that's that's my fortieth uh, birthday party. Oh okay. <laughs> and the uh, and the four thousand. Um, represents the 4,000 frames on a 100-foot roll of film, um, since it's all shot a frame at a time. Uh, and so that's, uh, I don't know, a uh, another camera roll piece, and one that is paired together with a 78 RPM record. Um, right. Yeah, I do remember that. It was, uh, it's a klezmer Piece, yes right? yes yeah. abe uh, abe schwartz's orchestra <laughs> yeah it's um a wedding a silver wedding is that it i think that's yeah i think that's the title yeah. um that's pretty cool yeah i was i was really intrigued by that one as well i like uh i, I like that pairing that's really cool and the reason why i'm asking so much about specific things especially around cameras is because of your book uh, mm-hmm. experimental filmmaking and the motion picture camera Mm-hmm. An introductory guide for artists and filmmakers. That's why I'm focusing so much on that because you wrote a book mm-hmm. for filmmakers about making experimental films with a bolax, correct? Oh yes, yes. Um, not limited just to the bolax. You know, I talk a little bit about other cameras as well. Although there, there is a, a chapter kind of devoted solely to the Bolex as sort of a, a camera manual for the Bolex that goes beyond what, uh, you know, the basics of just how to load the camera gets a little bit into, you know, all of the, uh, the sort of bells and whistles of this, uh, this machine. You're listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. And now back to the show. The inspiration for the book was the fact that I'd been teaching this experimental filmmaking class at the New School, uh, and there wasn't really a suitable textbook to use for this class. Um, and so I didn't use any any textbook at all. Uh, and then the opportunity sort of presented itself to, uh, to propose a... Uh, a textbook to the publisher and now I actually do have a textbook for this class although since the uh, the pandemic I've not actually used it at all uh, the class hasn't hasn't been able to meet in person so it uh, it may not be for a little while before I actually get to use my own textbook um, 
the uh, <coughs> years and years ago, um, Alan Berliner, the filmmaker Alan Berliner, had been teaching at the New School, and I had been talking to him about, you know, trying to propose a experimental filmmaking class that would center on use of the camera. And he had an interesting take on it. He's like, well, how do you actually teach someone to experiment with the camera? I mean, what, what is it that they're, you know, that they're doing, you know, that makes an experiment? Do you tell them, here's how to load the camera, now go load it wrong, and that's your experiment? Um, but, uh, I don't know, focusing on sort of doing work in in the camera, having the camera sort of be the sort of entire sort of uh, entire process of, you know, uh, you know, shooting the material, but also editing by deciding to work in camera through, you know, working with all the footage, you know, uh, as it as it emerges in completed form. Um, you know, that that sort of became the the basis for for this class. Um, and that, you know, was a, a subject where I don't know, you could find some information on on doing things like I don't know, double exposures and such, but um, but nothing that really kind of touched on these other aspects of the camera. Um, so that was, uh, was sort of the, the impetus for putting this book together. Um, and, uh, you know, also making it something that could be useful as just an introductory test text to 16 millimeter filmmaking, but for someone who's more, you know, more interested in taking an experimental approach and doesn't need to uh, sort of have, have the sort of, uh, I don't know, more boilerplate information um, on conventional filmmaking that that most production textbooks have. Yeah, I so, tried to. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Uh, I tried to get a copy of it. Uh, via Kindle, but my Kindle app keeps crashing, so I can't even open it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I'm thinking I probably need an update or delete the app and, and try again. But uh, anyway, I do have it. I'm I'm uh, anxious to have a look at it. So um, anyway, I'll, I'll take a look at that and let you know what I think. <laughs> oh, I, haven't, well, thank you. I haven't ever shot on 16 millimeter. I have shot on 8 but um, mm -hmm. I've, I've wanted to get into 16, but it's a little tougher and it's a little more expensive. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I know there's ways to, you know, make it less expensive. Like, uh, for example, do you uh, develop or process your own film? Oh, um, when when the project calls for it, um, I do. Um, the film that I had mentioned before, 70 RPM, was entirely hand-processed. At least the uh, the film component of it, um, and I ended up shooting a uh, hundred rolls of of black and white sixteen millimeter film and processing them all. Uh, one one thing I realized in terms of uh, just speeding up 
that process uh, was to get two developing tanks and then I could use them side by side, you know, uh, in the sink. Um, and so, I don't know, it was, uh, it was a lot of rolls, rolls of film to process. Um, but, I don't know, the, the thing to think about in terms of hand processing is that no matter what you do, hand process film is going to have a certain look to it, a, uh, a patina. Uh, it, will, it will never have that pure, pristine look that uh, film developed at the lab will have. Um, so the question is finding uh, the sort of project where that patina meshes together with it or even kind of enhances what you're doing um, uh, so that, I don't know, it doesn't sort of become something that you have to kind of, I don't know, sort of be uh, apologetic about or anything, that it, that it really is sort of integral to the piece. And with the, the film on 78 records, you know, that analog quality of the 78 record is the sort of presence of this slightly scratchy sound that comes from a different era that, uh, you know, isn't sort of the perfect high fidelity sound of a digital file, you know, uh, that just lent itself even more to sort of this hand processed look where you have all the sort of like little imperfections and chemical marks and, and such that, that give hand processed film its, its uniqueness. So are all of your projects, uh, would you consider all of them to be uh, under the experimental genre or, I mean, maybe 78 RPM might be a kind of a crossover, but is the rest of your work uh, 100% experimental? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's 100% experimental in some ways. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to know where things kind of fall on that, you know, on that, you know, sort of that spectrum, you know, is, uh, you know, Michael Snow's wavelength has a, as Michael Snow's wavelength has a plot. Does that make it kind of less of an experimental film? It's hard to say. Um, I mean, 78 RPM is sort of an experimental documentary. Um, it's a documentary that, you know, is a bit unorthodox. Um, I, you know, I kind of like the, these sort of uh, gray areas between different forms. Um, and uh, so, you know, I've done you know, a few things that have been some, something of an experimental work, but then also could, uh, you know, enter a festival with the little box where documentary checked off. Um, uh, a film I did, uh, Louis Armstrong Oban, shot on Super 8 with uh, digital interviews. Um, is uh, the portrait of this uh, jazz musician from Japan who would do this pilgrimage to Louis Armstrong's grave in Queens. Uh, there, you know, uh, we kind of have the interviews sort of acting as a more or less conventional 
documentary and the uh, Super 8 footage being, uh, you know, a more experimental piece. And, you know, I kind of I kind of like it when these two things can kind of coexist in the same piece. Um, and, uh, you know, it falls between those sorts of categories. Right. I like that as well. In fact, your film Tesla Mania feels very <laughs> experimental documentary as well. I don't know if that's what you were going for, but, you know, because of all the <laughs> the facts about Tesla and all the the trivia about Tesla in the, in the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's also a film that uh, was done in through the camera uh, in terms of the images, um, the, uh, the superimpositions, the little uh, sort of like prisms and things are just held in front of the camera lens. Uh, and it's just two camera rolls with, uh, with no editing beyond just splicing a title on the front. Um, the sound though is much more heavily edited and the sound sort of was, was done through digital editing. You know, this whole business of <laughs> there being sort of a kind of a, something hard to distinguish between uh, the two medium. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. We, for a while I, I was just showing it and playing some music to go with it. But uh, I don't know. I, I thought it. I thought it needed. It needed more kind of uh, uh, more something that reflected more the uh, performance that was being filmed. Um, you know, uh, there used to be a uh, a experimental theater group, uh, the Collective Unconscious, that uh, had this Tesla coil. And uh, we hear the voice of uh, Gecko, one of the performers, who uh, has this whole uh, presentation that she does about Tesla and sort of zaps different things on the Tesla coil. Uh, so, you know, it, uh, what we hear on the soundtrack is sort of a, a distillation of of her uh, Tesla talk. I noticed in uh, one of your interviews, you talked about um, Barbara Hammer. I was wondering if Mm -hmm. she is one of your inspirations or who are your, the the filmmakers who you look to as inspiration. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Barbara Hammer is high up there because I, when I had really uh, just, I don't know, started to, sort of poke my way around working with film. Um, I was invited by a friend to a screening at the uh, Collective Unconscious that Barbara Hammer was giving. And she showed some of her own work, uh, Optic Nerve, um, being one of the pieces on the program, and then also showed work by Marie Menken. Uh, and talked about Marie Menken and her work. Um, and I kind of feel like that was sort of a pivotal moment for me. Like I I walked out of that screening realizing I, I was going to be an experimental filmmaker. Um, and so, you know, Barbara Hammer was, was kind of very important in, in that sense. Um, you know, uh, but I don't know. I also around that time, sort of 
became acquainted with a whole sort of film community around anthology film archives and the filmmakers co-op, um, you know, when uh, and Millennium Film Workshop as well, which uh, you know isn't isn't around, but new organizations like Mono Noire have kind of stepped up and uh, are sort of you know carrying on, uh, you know, carrying on the the those sorts of efforts. So, yeah, in in some ways, I don't know. It was it was it was also the fact that there was this whole filmmaking community that uh, that was I don't know sort of helpful and inspiring, you know, especially getting started. Do you have any particular films? that you really like, whether they're mainstream or experimental. I'm just curious what, what your favorite films are. Oh, um, well, I don't know. I, I quite love, uh, Mr. Hulo's holiday, um, uh, which, uh, I don't know, is, uh, you know, just sort of a, you know, a delightful piece. Um, but, uh, you know, among, among experimental work, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, there's films, you know, uh, sort of of the, the classic period, like uh, Bruce Bailey's Castro Street. Um, I really like the work of Takashi Ito. Uh, and uh, and also, um, you know, I don't know, sort of more, uh, more contemporary filmmakers like uh, Julie Orlick who's an interesting person in that, you know, someone whose work also kind of sort of harkens back to, uh, you know, sort of this sort of, uh, sort of nostalgia for, for arcane, arcane aesthetics, um, you know, very influenced by, um, you know, artists like Redon and, uh, and people like, um, you know, uh, Kenneth Anger, as well as, uh, you know, um, the, uh, the sort of aesthetic of the Bauhaus. Um, but I don't know, uh, other films that, uh, that I like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I like a lot of work that also kind of falls between boundaries that, uh, that, you know, can be kind of viewed in some cases as a documentary piece, but the same piece can also be looked at as a work of personal cinema. And then the same piece also looked at as an experimental piece. Um, Jim Hubbard's Two Marches is a, a film like that, in that it's a political film, a personal film, an experimental film. Uh, Sue Friedrich's work um, is work that I really admire in this way as well, work that is able to be, you know, this multifaceted piece uh, by being, you know, partly uh, documentary, partly experimental, partly personal cinema, partly experimental work. So that's, that's some, some of the work that I, uh, that I, respond to and find interesting right yeah i like i like barbara hammer's work i especially like the one 
And I hope I'm not getting this mixed up with somebody else, but it's called Maya Darren's Sync. And it's a it's just a video of I I assume it's Maya Darren's Sync and it's a there's a, a kind of a dialogue running behind it. It it cracks me up because you know, everybody wants, I guess, a piece of someone famous like that. And then she was just showing, showing Maya Darren's sink, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that one that one really intrigued me. I like that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. um, if you can tell us, uh, are you working on something new or, you know, what are you working on now? Oh, I don't know. I I feel like uh, the, uh, the COVID pandemic has brought a lot to a grinding halt. Um, it's funny, I was having a, <coughs> a conversation with, a, well, conversation is the wrong word, an email exchange with a, a filmmaker friend in, in London, um, this woman, Kiara, and we were both commiserating on the fact that, you know, we have these big projects we could be editing right now. And it seems like, yes, now it might be the time to like, you know, sort of do a more kind of monastic project of, of you know, sitting down in the editing room and emerging with, with something finished. But, uh, but we're both finding it hard to, uh, to edit <laughs> at this moment. She's working on, uh, on, on block prints and, uh, and artist books, and I've been working on Magic Lantern-related things. Um, and I think it must be something about editing, where one is kind of alone with this material for extended periods of time, that you need to kind of counterbalance that with being out around people and in the world. And so, uh, I don't know, now seems like it ought to be the time when one could, you know, sort of... Uh, huddled together with uh with a piece and edit it but um i've just not been able to i don't know not been able to do that right now so it's mainly kind of working with the magic turn um which is uh something that uh that i've been doing recently uh because uh my partner don elliott um she does a lot of work with uh, with museums and historic sites, and uh, we've been able to sort of do these presentations that kind of mix together uh, projection and uh, historic context, and uh, so you know we uh, we've been working, for instance, on trying to uh, trying to build a a a working version of um, a phantasma excuse me we've been working on trying to build a a working version of a phantasmagoria projector Uh, this was something that existed in the late 18th century and early 19th century there were only a few around in museums but it was designed so that we could see some sort of ghost or spirit on the screen, but then it would grow and expand in size. And this was done by having the projector behind the screen on track. And the projector would literally be wheeled backwards away from the screen. As it gets further away, the image grows and gets bigger on the screen. Uh, But it demands this whole crazy apparatus of projector and stand and the stand has to have wheels on it and then you have track um, 
So that's uh, that's been kind of the uh, the project of the moment. Very cool. Yeah, I had the same issue. I guess everybody does. I thought during this pandemic I was going to sit down and I was going to write out a million scripts and I was going to do some uh, found footage work. And I just, I, it's weird. It, it seems like there's just, I don't know, a lack of motivation or something. So I, I think that's a pretty common feeling for everyone. It feels like almost an entire lost year. Mm. And it's it really mm. bothers me. But hey, what can you do? <laughs> well, mm-hmm. um, to wrap up here, do you have a website or other ways for the audience to check out your work? Oh yes, yeah. There's uh, there's just uh, joelschlumwitz dot com. Um, but you know, with all these different irons in the fire, uh, there also is Magic Lantern exhibition for the uh, Magic Lantern pieces and um, experimentalfilmmaking.com that uh, relates to the uh, experimental filmmaking textbook. Um, I probably have other URLs I'm not thinking of too. Oh, that's fine. Well, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's been a long time coming that I've, I've wanted to get you on the podcast and I tried to get you on last season, but I just couldn't, make it work with my schedule and move and everything. So um, I'm glad I finally got you on. Well, thank you, Ken. It's been delightful speaking to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us for the second episode of season two of the Experimental Film Podcast. Our guest today was experimental filmmaker and author Joel Schlimowitz. Please contact me if you'd like to schedule an interview, sponsor the podcast, or point me to some cool experimental films. And we'll see you next time. If you would like to sponsor a podcast or schedule an interview, send an email to ken at experimentalfilm.info. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess.